0: Hello and welcome. I'm Moira Shuri. 2021 marks the 11th annual Zocalo Book and Poetry Prizes. Zocalo Public Square is a creative unit of Arizona State University. Our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. We are very grateful to Tim Disney for underwriting our prizes and honorable mention awards this year. This entire event has been made possible by his generosity. Today's program opens with a reading of La Mujer from the Zocalo Poetry Award winner, Angelica Esquivel. Our sponsor, Mr. Disney, will then present the book prize award of $10,000 to Jialin Yang for her book, One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, it's a terrific book and puts Gia in the great company of our previous winners who include Danielle Allen, Jonathan Haidt, Michael Ignatieff, and Sherry Turkle. Finally, Tomas Jimenez, Stanford University Professor of Sociology and Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity will interview Gia in. Join in our live and interactive discussion in our chat room as we tackle the question. Does America really want to be a nation of immigrants? And first, you're going to hear from our Poetry Prize winner, Miss Angelica Esquivel.
1: My name is Angelica Esquivel, and this is my poem, La Mujer. Candyland's queen is a believer born of jelly slip-on sandals and ruthless pretension, sour offerings of limon y sal. Her niche is here and aquí tú entiendes yin y yang, pop can tabs in a jar above the stove, aguacate ripening on the windowsill, Utilitarianism embraced and stitched to something lovely. On the wall, a painting of an elder in the style of chuck clothes, rippling pixels of gray mustache, sun-weathered skin. She, his queen, refuses to be reduced to a crankshaft or piece of produce. She is the soul change in a room full of constants, syrup over plywood paneling, corn husk soaking in the sink. A silver braid snakes down her back as she hums along to the accordion song, boiling tap water and stealing secrets for lunch. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Angelica. Congratulations on this well-deserved prize. Your poem La Mujer transports across cultures and generations and yet feels very specific and momentary. It's profound and moving and deserving of this recognition. And congratulations too, to all the many other talented nominees for the prize. Your great work deserves acknowledgement and attention as well. My name is Tim Disney and I'm proud to sponsor this year's Zocalo Book and Poetry Prizes. For 11 years, Zocalo Public Square has awarded its annual book prize to the author of a nonfiction book that best enhances our understanding of community and the forces that strengthen or undermine human connectedness and social cohesion. I'm honored to present this year's $10,000 prize to Jia Lin Yang for her powerful book, One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, to recognize her outstanding work in explicating the complicated and fraught history of immigration to this country. This topic and her masterful treatment of it could not be more salient. This book stood out for how Gia Lin uses her own family's history of emigrating to America to create an emotional connection as she explores the fight for recognition and representation that generations of immigrant have demanded. Many of those historical figures and issues have receded from public view, but Gia Lin's evocative writing brings them to life with an immediacy that makes the history especially relevant today. Lin currently serves as national editor of the New York Times and was previously part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize at the Washington Post. And now I'm pleased to introduce the winner of the 11th annual Zocalo Book Prize, Lin Yang.
3: Thank you to the judges of the Zocalo Book Prize. Um, Thank you to all of you for being here this evening. My wildest dream for my book was that it would foster a sense of community. And so the particular purpose of this prize means the world to me. Thank you for seeing that spirit in this work, especially in a year when our sense of community as a country has been so deeply tested. When I started my book in early 2016, I had a pretty straightforward question before me, one that I was a bit embarrassed I didn't know the answer to already. Why was my family allowed to come to this country? Not, why did we leave China or Taiwan? That was a story I knew well. This new question was less about where we had left and more about where we had arrived. What was this place that had taken us? What was its purpose? Why us? Why not someone else? This started as a kind of political genealogy project, something that I thought other immigrants, other children of immigrants might find interesting, people whose families had come since 1965 from Asia, the Middle East, Africa, all over the world. Then it turned into something much more strange because over the four years that I was working on the book from 2016 to 2020, I began seeing all kinds of parallels between the arguments over immigration that I was seeing pouring over archives and books and libraries and what was going on in our country. And what was being said in the news did not merely have echoes from the past. They were messages that seemed to have risen from the dead. So just a sample from someone 1922, a Senator named David Reed. This is someone who, you know, no one knows his name anymore, but he was a Senator from Pennsylvania who led the charge to pass extremely strict ethnic quotas in the 1920s that essentially cut out Jews, Catholics, Asians, anyone who wasn't from Northwest Europe in an effort to keep the country white, Protestant and Anglo-Saxon. And this is David Reed in 1922. He says that he's worried that other nations want to quote, make us the trash basket of all creation by sending us the very worst they have. There is only one way in which the question of immigration can be dealt with. We must not legislate for the interests of any country on the globe except the United States." And they successfully caught up immigration for decades. There was little resistance from Americans who took it for granted that of course the country's identity was white and Protestant and Anglo-Saxon. A hundred years later as I was working on my book, it was a completely different story. When Trump just a week into office signed the Muslim travel ban, There was an enormous uproar. Um, It's hard to remember that far back, but it was incredible. Thousands of people spontaneously went to airports around the country to protest. And they had a kind of moral language that was not present in the century before. I went back and looked recently at photos from the protest and they had signs that said things like banning Muslims is un-American, refugees are welcome, and most powerfully, we are a nation of immigrants. Now, this concept of a nation of immigrants can sometimes feel like, in my mind, like it was set in stone at the founding of this country. You know, what could be more obvious? Of course, we're a nation of immigrants. But I wanna argue briefly here that this political idea is not only not that old, it's quite radical. Um, So if this message of a nation of immigrants didn't exist in the 1920s, when did it arrive? I think the person most responsible for it is a historian named Oscar Handlin who in the 1950s was a very widely read public intellectual. Hanlon was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. He was born in 1915 in New York. He's part of a historic wave of Jewish immigrants who transformed the city of New York and other places in the country. And in 1951, he wrote a book called The Uprooted, which won the Pulitzer Prize. This book is kind of an unusual book. It's a very lyrical study of immigrants and what happens to them when they come in this country. And it begins with these very powerful words that established Handlin as essentially the creator of an entire field of history studying American immigrants. He wrote, once I thought to write a history of the immigrants in America, then I discovered that immigrants were American history. You have to understand by the 1950s when this book comes out, Thanks to the ethnic quotas I was just talking about from Senator David Reed, there are just far fewer immigrants in the country. This whole idea of immigrants being a large part of American culture had essentially faded and was thought to have been purely a thing of the past. And so when Hanlon says that immigrants are American history, he's creating kind of a new romanticized idea of American nationalism that is rooted in immigrants. Before this, the only kind of comparable national mythology is about the American West, but that is sort of the heart of America. But Handlin is really flipping that script. And if anyone, any of you remember from being taught in school, the way that immigration began to be taught that there are waves of these immigrants, people who came from England, then from Germany, then Ireland and Italy, this is Hanlon's legacy. He really creates that kind of narrative around immigration history. And Handlin is a popular writer, historian, but he's also politically active. And in the 1950s he's deeply involved in trying to abolish the ethnic quotas from the 1920s. And this is a time when Congress is really for the first time truly confronting these ethnic quotas. The country is, you know, has has had victory in World War II. And yet during the war, because of the quotas, it was tragically unable to admit nearly as many Jewish refugees from the Holocaust as many wanted. And so after the war, there's really an effort that Hanlon is part of to abolish these quotas once and for all. And Hanlon literally testifies before a presidential commission that President Truman has started looking at how the laws need to be changed. It fails, but when you look at the arguments, what's so interesting is that they're less about who's coming in the future. They're much more about the symbolism of who is already here. The ethnic quotas ranked people by desirability. So it effectively said, if you're Jewish, if you're Catholic, you're less desirable than someone who is British. And so this is a time when people who are Jewish, who are Italians, Irish Catholic, are really trying to say that they belong in the country. They're not even necessarily immigrants. They're sometimes descendants of them, but it's all about whether they truly belong. And no one at this time in the 50s and 60s embodied this journey to the mainstream of these immigrants and their children more than John F. Kennedy. So Kennedy in the 50s is a young Irish Catholic senator on the make, and he basically takes Handlin's message and writes a pamphlet called A Nation of Immigrants. And the pamphlet is a little bit funny. It's it's basically the Anti-Defamation League goes to Kennedy's office and says, would you write this sort of short pamphlet um, for us, sort of celebrating this legacy of America as a nation of immigrants. And he does, and you see language that's very much from Handlin's work, he says things like, there's no part of America that has not been touched by our immigrant background. Later, when Kennedy's president, he tries as well to advance legislation that will abolish these ethnic quotas from the 20s. And he begins to try to turn this pamphlet into a book. Tragically, the book, this book is deep in edits with Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the historian, when JFK is assassinated in 1963. And the book ultimately is published posthumously and the first printing sells out immediately. When Johnson takes over, he basically takes Kennedy's unfinished mission, including this immigration effort to abolish the quotas and all of the civil rights laws that he passes. And he basically says that this is a, a martyr's cause And so after 40 years of trying and failing to end these quotas, he signs a law called the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which finally abolishes the quotas. And he uses the arguments that Handlin and JFK have advanced that say, this is a country of immigrants, this is who we are, this is why we have to do this. He says on the day that he signs this bill in front of the Statue of Liberty, our beautiful America was built by a nation of strangers from a hundred different places or more, they poured forth into an empty land not quite so empty, but joining and blending in one mighty and irresistible tide. And Johnson promised the law would not be revolutionary. He said it would not change America, but he was wrong. This law ends up unleashing huge amounts of new immigration from outside Europe, far more than anyone had planned. These people transformed the country. Places like New York have new Chinatowns that sprout in Flushing, Um, Sunset Park, there are Iranians in Los Angeles, Arab Americans in Michigan, Vietnamese in Virginia, New Orleans, Houston, I could go on. It's this group of people whose families are here because of the 1965 law, because of the arguments around a nation of immigrants who are now changing this country in enormous and lasting ways that I think we are only beginning to understand and to see. And it's some of these sane people who during this pandemic have become scared to walk in the street. They're worried that they might be attacked yelled at and told things like, go back to your country, you're not from here, you're Asian. And so does America really want to be a nation of immigrants? I'd say sometimes yes, sometimes no, but there's nothing automatic about it. Even the very idea of a nation of immigrants as I've just outlined is something that was fought for and that changed the country forever. I think sometimes this idea of a nation of immigrants feels so familiar that we lose sense of how radical it is and why it endures as a kind of nationalism that's as foundational as any to the American project. To say that the people who define this country are the same people who are not from it, that it, is the, that it is the outsiders who make it what it is, that is quite an idea. And so now I think it's up to a new generation of immigrants and their children, much like the ones who came before, the Jews, the Catholics, the Italians, who have to redefine what it means to be a nation of immigrants, just as their predecessors did, to build on what was there before, to claim what is the same, but to also make it different. Thank you.
4: Jaylin, thank you so much for those comments. Thank you for writing this book and congratulations on receiving this much deserved award. Thank you so much. Um, so, um, there's so much to talk about, but I'd like to talk about you a little bit first, if that's okay. Um, so for most of us, our, our biographies are the root of our intellectual interest, and you touched on the fact that you embarked on this project partly because of your own family history, but I wonder if you can dive into that a little bit more for us and, and tell us uh, tell us about the biographical roots of this project.
3: So my family came here post-1965. Um, my family originally two generations ago were in Shanghai and China, and basically fled in 1949 um, when the communists took over and fled to Taiwan, which is where my parents were born. They ended up coming to the US um, in the 60s and 70s for graduate degrees and basically stayed. and. I only learned through this project and looking at it that it's really thanks to this 1965 Immigration Nationality Act that my family was allowed to stay. And it's not just my parents, it's my aunts and uncles, it's my cousins. You know, what I didn't explain in my lecture just now is that the mechanism for why so many immigrants have come is that there is essentially a family reunification clause, you know, what conservatives call chain migration and so my family too benefited from this 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 is a mechanism where if you have a sibling or a child or a parent you can you have priority in a line for a permanent visa and so my family like many others is basically dependent on this mechanism for so many of us to be here and I essentially just tried to, I just wanted to understand, you know, why, why are my parents here? And then it wasn't just my own family. It was looking around at my friends, my friends whose families were from Iran or Afghanistan or Poland. I just wanted to know I'm from the Northern Virginia area. It's very, very multi-ethnic. And I, once I, once you sort of stop to look around to see how many people from around the world, it just struck me like, why, why don't I know why all these people are here? You know, we know that there's so many restrictions. How did this country get so multi-ethnic? And beyond my own family, I mean, this is the root of our country's deep demographic changes. When we talk about you know, white Americans becoming less than 50% of the country, this is what we're talking about, it's, it's immigration.
4: Yeah, thank you for that. You know, for, for a lot of us, when we start to think about where we come from, we start by asking our parents or we ask our grandparents, um, and it says something about you that, that you go much beyond that and you write a word-winning word, book uh, to, to try and answer a question. I'm glad that you did because you tell a really, really important part of American history that I confess that I didn't know a lot about. Uh, and, and I'm supposedly a scholar of immigration. And, and uh, it, this kind of brings me to my next question. When I, when I teach my undergrads uh, a class on immigration, I do a, a brief overview of the history of immigration policy. And I run through the period that you spend a whole book on very quickly. I mean, probably less than 90 seconds. And I describe it as a hiatus of American immigration, that it's sort of a period of non-immigration and demographically it is. There are very few immigrants, relatively speaking, come to the United, coming to the United States in that period. And, and I tend to think of the period that you write about as just this kind of mostly blank spot with the exception of the 52 law uh, in between the 1924 law that cut off immigration and the 1965 law that that opened it back up, um, but but tell us more about why you chose this particular period when I think most of us think of many other periods in American history as being much more uh, relevant to to immigration.
3: It is a weird period because it's just a, it's just a series of failures. You know, It's people trying over and over and over. I was trying to say my lecture a little bit, but like they are failing every time. I and mean, it is like a 40, I mean, it, in a way it's so bad that um, even though I know the history well, I still am astonished that the 1965 law happens because I know so deeply how many people tried to end these ethnic quotas from the twenties and utterly failed. I mean, didn't even come close, right? Um, but it turns out, I think if you look at that period more closely, despite the kind of headline failures to change immigration laws, there's all this churning happening underneath, right? So when I was just talking about building this moral argument of a nation of immigrants, that stuff is happening. And even the question of what it means to be like a mainstream American is changing too. So I think whiteness, the who counts as white is changing, right? So you have all these Jews and Catholics who come in, you know, between let's say the turn of the 20th century and they seem like utterly foreign to people when they come. I mean, now because of our kind of conception of who counts as white, it, it would seem weird to differentiate between an Italian American and Irish American and Jewish American. But at this time, people are really kind of horrified at their arrival and how different they seem. They're deeply worried about their assimilation it's between the 1920s and the 1960s that this group really does sort of announce its own assimilation. They're basically saying, we are part of the American project. And that's why they're so eager to abolish these quotas. I mean, I think that's why immigration is not really just about who's out there and wants to come in. It's about who's already here and whether they actually belong. You know, and that's how the people who looked at this whole fight, that's how they saw it. They didn't see it as being about sort of you know, a a potential relative coming of their own. It was really saying, you know, I'm Jewish, but I'm still American. I'm Irish Catholic, but I'm still American. And that's what their fight is about. So there's something about the way that they change their approach. I think they create this really very powerful kind of new nationalism around what immigrants mean to the country. All of that is something that we are living with now. And I also just thought the tale of I focused on it because when you see all that failure, by the time it happens, it's kind of stunning, right? You sort of, it's, if you don't know how hard it is, you don't quite appreciate as much what is done when it finally happens. That's, that's how it felt to me. Like, I I think I went into this really taking for granted that my family was allowed to be here, but seeing how much, how many people fought, how many people did not even live to see it, despite spending decades on this, um, it, it just makes you appreciate it and just have a sense of, oh, this wasn't automatic. Someone had to really work hard for this.
4: Yeah, I want to come back to the, the issue of time in a second and, and that theme of, of failure and it taking um, so long and relate it to, to the contemporary period, but I'll, but I'll put a pin in that for now. Um, and, and I want to ask you about the the people involved here who, um, as, as I think, you know, you just mentioned and as you tell so eloquently in the book, sort of failed over and over again uh, until by some stroke of a miracle it seemed they, they, um, they got rid of the quotas and passed the 1965 law. Um, but you know going back to like the way that I teach this period or any period of immigration history I, I kind of tell it as, a, as, um, as involving a, a bunch of disembodied uh, you know branches of government and, and these laws that just sort of seemingly emerge out of nowhere but that's not at all the way you tell this story. It is a character-driven story. It's we learn about the deep biographies of people like Emanuel Seller and Pat McCarran and Harry Truman and Mike Masawaka and Lyndon Johnson and aides to the presidents, et cetera, et cetera. So um, you could have told this history as a more kind of you know disembodied, less biographical account. But but tell us a little bit about why you chose to tell a more character-driven account, assuming that you you buy that characterization of, of your book.
3: That is what I tried to do. I mean, I, I think the reason, I mean, I when I read history, I, I, I love reading history books. Those are the types of history books that I really just enjoy. But also it felt like it was necessary to understanding how any of it had happened at all. I mean, pretty much everyone who's central on this, including deep opponents, have some very personal connection to whether this country is a nation of immigrants. So you have someone like Manny Seller who, you know, again, is one of those names, no one really talks about him anymore, but he was chairman of the House Judiciary Committee for many, many years. And essentially he was LBJ's partner in all of these, you know, really foundational landmark civil rights um, laws that were passed in the sixties. But Manny Seller is in Congress from the twenties into the 70s, like into into the next administration, and he's the grandson of German Jews. And so that changes how he sees immigration. You know, it's 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 like he thinks of himself as someone who's very much from an immigrant background, even though his parents are American born. He's from Brooklyn. He grows up surrounded by you know Italian Americans, Irish Americans. He just takes it as part of who he is that he's he's of an immigrant past a recent past um you know same with um someone like lbj right sort of an odd you know he's not he doesn't have immigrants recently in his past but he's from texas and he spends time teaching mexican americans and he actually gets involved briefly during world war ii with getting people out of europe saving jewish refugees um jfk you know again not himself an immigrant but completely rises in political power off the idea that he is kind of a quote unquote minority, right? He's like, he's almost an Obama like figure in a way. if you if you go back and read how people describe him, they sort of they call him a minority. They say that he symbolizes that, you know, we have arrived, we being, again, these sort of more marginal white ethnic groups that were sort of struggling to really say like, we're really here, we're really American. So all these people just have very personal reasons to care about immigration. and it just seemed like, to explain how it happens, you have to know um, this personal history. And and of course that struck me because I bring a personal history to it too for my own interest. And I I just loved exploring through all these different people. How did they think of their own identity? You know, JFK was someone who really spent almost no time in Ireland in his life, Um, but he becomes kind of more Irish uh, as he ascends politically. And that's why immigration becomes such a big priority for him.
4: Yeah. So um, let, let's go back to the issue of time and actually maybe like zoom in on one of the characters who at least inspired my next question, which is Emmanuel Seller. And um, you sort of anticipated uh, this question in many ways by mentioning just how long he was involved in these fights, right? And and in the book, you talk about uh, Manny Seller just be, um, overcome with joy when the 65 law finally passes as if he can't believe it himself. Um, and I want to kind of ask you to reflect on what the the, um, kind of perseverance of the characters involved, the the amount of time, the number of times they failed at um, overturning the quotas, does that hold any lessons for today when there's a seeming inability despite various administrations putting emphasis on it, including the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now the Biden administration saying that comprehensive immigration reform is a big priority, uh, that a mass legalization program is a big priority, the DREAM Act is a big priority, and the DREAM Act and mass legalization have um, pretty widespread, compared to any kind of other issue, widespread support from the American public, and yet we can't get it done. So you know, when you look at the period of history that you studied and, and what it took for the 65 law to pass and, and read the contemporary period through that history, with that history in mind, are you hopeful? Are you pessimistic? Is, 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 the, is, this, a, is this a comparison worth making?
3: You know, I have to say I'm not. I don't really, I think it's so hard. Like I, you know, if you look at how they actually get it through, I mean, a series of really freakish events occur. I mean, there are are a couple committee chairmen who are really blocking things for years and years. A couple of them have to die, you know, one an untimely death. Um, I would argue JFK when he's trying to push through this reform He's not getting anywhere with it. It's it's not happening. You know, he's trying to publish this pamphlet again as a nation of immigrants to kind of gin up more support, but it's going nowhere until he he dies in this tragic way and LBJ can sort of take the the moral momentum of that moment and the country in mourning to pass all kinds of legislation including this immigration law. So, and I think the reason why it's so hard is you know, I think we tend to sometimes talk about this policy is just very, it's very complicated. I mean, that's the other thing to say is like, if you just go back in the history, this period of time is also where, where we just make immigration so complicated. I mean, there were not visas before the 1920s. You didn't have paperwork you needed. You didn't have to go to a consulate office. There was no line if you showed up at the, at, you know, at a station, um, and you made the journey and you seemed healthy enough they turned away very few people there were very few you know it was just a completely paper almost paperless system compared to what it is now but i guess i'm trying to say like it's not simply because it's complicated i think that we struggled to pass legislation dealing with it it's that it's really foundational you know it's it's again not just about who's going to come but it's about who counts now and it's just very hard to get to the heart of these questions i mean even if you um, you know, to figure out who can come and who, who can't. I mean, I think during the Trump years, it felt morally more straightforward for people who are pro-immigration. It just seemed like, well, we're not doing that. But when you have to ask yourself, so what are we doing instead? I think it's very hard to arrive at clear answers. I mean, you first have to ask yourself, do you want open borders? Which we had for a long time until, you know, about a hundred years ago. Um, if you don't and you want to cap the number of immigrants, what number? What, what number makes sense? And I, I don't, I mean, how would you find this number? And it's a number that as a country we kind of have to agree upon, like how many do we wanna take? It's sort of like the refugee number, right? That's been fought over recently with the Biden administration. It's hard to name what the number is. You establish the number somehow, then you have to kind of rank preferences. So is it people who um, are refugees? People who've become stateless? People in countries where we have a history of foreign policy maybe gone wrong, right? Do we owe it more to those people? Or is it people with special technical skills, doctors, engineers, scientists, or is it people who have family, right? Or is it people like there are all kinds of ways of looking at it. And I just think it's so deeply morally complicated to figure this out. That to me, that's fundamentally why we struggle so much to do this. Um, And, you know, I think if you read the book, it, it. doesn't make you terribly hopeful for change. Um, again, because you see how many fundamental issues we have to come together on to make it happen and how much when they did 65, they downplayed all of that. They really did not announce it as a revolutionary, as the, as the revolutionary law that it would become. Um, and that's the only way they were able to pass it, I think.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, your comments just now and and portions of the book remind me of this um, of this book by the the uh, political historian Aristide Zolberg called A Nation by Design and and the theme of the book is that um, we can tell a country's character by their immigration laws and I think and I'm, maybe I'm just reflecting back something you just said that part of why we struggle so much I think has to do with the fact that there are really hard choices to make but the other reason that we struggle so much is that in answering the question of what kind of immigration policy should we have, we're fundamentally answering the question, who are we? Um, and, I, and your book illustrates that beautifully. And and so, um, you know, I, I think that people like me who, who think that there should be big immigration reform, quite honestly, have a hard time articulating concisely what some of those trade-offs are and what they should be We're really good at saying what our immigration policy shouldn't be but as you're pointing out you know um, the the difficulty is in the details so I, I appreciate you bringing that up
3: um, there's actually a, just to, there's a yeah. really funny part where I, I just sort of thought it was funny it's like 1962 or 63 JfKs in the White House they're like all right let's do it let's get rid of these quotas. And then they're like, wait, what are we replacing them with? And no one knows, it's amazing. They've been fighting over it for 40 years. And when it comes time to say, okay, so what are you gonna do? It's just a total, it's a mystery and it's very, very
4: hard. It is tough, it is tough. And, um, and just as a, as a segue to, to the next question, which is really the question that is the, the title of, of your talk um, today, or at least the title of our session here, uh, does, American, does America really want to be a nation of immigrants? And, and I want to ask you to answer that question, but I'm going to wrap the question in a hypothesis. Um, and, and maybe sort of my own answer to that question and then get you to react to it. So forgive me if I'm like, you know, interviewing myself for a second. Um, uh, but so, so the hypothesis is this, is that you know, we do think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants, But rather, we don't think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants. We think of ourselves as the descendants of immigrants. And in that, so we are a nation of descendants of immigrants. And we're very comfortable with being nostalgic in all the ways that the key players in your book are about an immigration wave that has come and gone. But when immigrants are coming here and they themselves are struggling with a process of adjustment, of learning a new language, of adjusting to a new legal status, of adjusting to a new social status, new kinds of racial identities, transformations uh, of, of the way that they think about themselves ethnically. And at the same time, established Americans are struggling with how to make sense of the country, their neighborhoods, religious institutions, schools, in view of these changes. That's much harder to say we are a nation of immigrants. So so the, the proposition that I wanna put on the table is this, that, that we're, we're not a nation of immigrants, we're a nation of descendants of immigrants. Um, and, and so, you know, if you were to take stock of of, uh, of the situation today in view of the history that you wrote about, wrapped, I'm doing a lot of wrapping here, wrapping uh, the, the proposition I just gave you, how do you answer the question? Do we still wanna be a nation of immigrants?
3: Well, there was a very, kind of weird poll that came out, um, I think not long after the election or right around that time where I think it's Gallup has been asking the same question on immigration for many decades now, I think going back at least to this 50s and 60s of, do you want more immigrants than we're taking in now? Do you wanna keep it at the same level or do you wanna decrease it? And what was so weird is that after, um, soon after the election, they they did the poll, and for the first time in history of taking it over all these decades, there were more Americans who said, Yes, I want more immigrants, um, than said I want less, or keeping it at the same, which is astonishing. I mean, I, I took from that to, to, to be that Trump had so, you know, politicized immigration, made it so partisan that when people hear, you know, do you want more immigrants, do you want fewer immigrants? People just translated that into pro or being pro or anti-Trump. But it struck me that in this moment where um, our kind of allegiance to these ideas, ideals around about immigration, the country really kind of rejected in a lot of, I mean, Trump unleashed a lot of racism, but that polling, and I think the way that people responded to Trump's immigration policies tells me that the country, a lot of the country said, no, 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 we are a nation of immigrants. I mean, this is so fundamental to who we are, that doing this is, completely you know antithetical to what we're about. I mean, it was so extreme that I think people didn't realize. I mean, I, I remember seeing people when Trump would do something to restrict, you know, not just illegal, but legal immigration, people would say, this isn't who we are. Like this is this is ahistorical. We've always, and I don't think people know this history that we've turned the spigot on and off very, very hard over the years. But I think that kind of knee jerk moral outrage tells me that the country on some level does want to be a nation of immigrants. I mean, I think there's something, there's something kind of almost narcissistic about it too. It's like, we're the best country, everyone wants to be here, right? Like it's sort of, if, if everyone wants to be here, then it means that we must be the best. So, but to but to your point, I mean, it also struck me during the Trump years that a lot of people on the left were almost treating immigrants as like, you know, mascots, right, it's like, we love immigrants, They're they're who we are. And yet it made me wonder, it's like, well, we have all these undocumented people. We have, you know, at least 23 million by anyone's count. And they're not treated particularly well. I mean, the people who are in our midst as immigrants, I mean, to your point, they don't have documents. A lot of them live in fear. Um, You know, this is not, if the country loves immigrants so much, then why are there all these people who are living in our midst who, you know, don't have equal rights, can't vote? You know, so there is something also... A little bit, I don't know if it's hypocritical, but it just seemed funny to me that there was such um there was so much moral outrage over Trump, but there was sort of less question, fewer questions being asked about how we treat the the immigrants who are in our midst.
4: For sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the things that um that I marvel at um and and I think is captured in many ways by the the change in the question, the answer to that Gallup poll about whether you want more immigrants, the same number of fewer immigrants, is, um, is really that we've actually become much more positive in our views about immigrants and immigration over time. The share of people who say that immigrants contribute more than they take has gone up over time. The share of people who think that, uh, that um, they would like to see a pathway to citizenship for uh, people who are currently undocumented has, has stayed steadily strong and in fact gone up slightly among Republicans over time. Um, so if I had to characterize Americans' views of immigration, it's, it's partly ambivalence, but I would say that, you know, it's tipping a little more as you, as you alluded to the, the kind of pro-immigrant side of things. My own research I, 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 uh, I've done, uh, some um, survey research, some experimental research, and then some in-depth interviews. And the in-depth interviews is where you really see that ambivalence come about. You see people drawing on their experience, even people who are ardent Trump supporters, who in uh, uh, a kind of knee-jerk would say that they think we should kind of close the borders. Um, but, but these people, if given the time, and you don't, they don't need that much time to talk about it, really express their bill and say, well, look, I understand people are coming here to struggle and they're actually really hardworking people. And I know some of them and, you know, they, they paint a much more positive view. And I think that kind of, um, sort of ambivalence at the individual level, in some ways reflects the, the larger ambivalence in American society, so.
3: At the uh, same time though, we see all these hate crimes, right. right? I mean, there's anti-Asian hate crimes now, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim hate crimes. I mean, I think we forget about the horrific El Paso shooting in 2019, yeah. it was an anti-Hispanic hate crime. Like, it's very weird, you're right. It's like people seem more positive, they'll show up at an airport to protest a travel ban. Yet there's also mass shootings. I mean, it's just a very, it feels like a very volatile mix to me because I think we are working out all these cultural demographic, political changes and they're very, I mean, changes, changing is hard. Um, and I think the whole country is kind of trying to process. So, so who are we now? And that's why I think this 1965 law is so important because it sort of set in motion all of this and we're still kind of coming to grips with what it, what it, what it has wrought really.
4: Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. And, and, uh, and, and kind of brings me to, to my next question, um, which is about polarization. Um, and, you know, your account of, of the period between 24 and 65, I think, flies in the face of competing narratives, uh, contemporary narratives about the American character. There are many narratives about the American character, but I think that there are two that are kind of prominent and that are in some ways read through the lens of the kind of Marvel universe of, of there being kind of good guys and bad guys. And um, depending on who you are, you're, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys and the bad guys have always been bad and we've always been the good guys. Uh, and, and how that translates into the, the kind of competing narratives that sit I think at, at the kind of polls, but that are, that are quite um, vocal is on the one hand that, um, that the United States is kind of uh, infallible, that what we do, everything we do, is, is unequivocally good, and then there's a competing narrative that says that the United States is is um, that is is defined by a legacy of exclusion and racism and discrimination and exploitation and immigration, is certainly central in that narrative. And there are of course lots of narratives in between. Um, but I want to I want to hear from you, given that you've spent so much time um, studying what some people studying the people and studying the events that that people regard on different sides of this narrative. And and I want to hear where how you think about the kind of competing narratives, backward looking narratives uh, about. I don't mean backward as in like they're normatively, but backward looking narratives uh, about. Um, about the United States and its character.
3: Yeah, I, I worry about that duality that you're talking about, because I think it kind of misses what the power of history can do, which is, in my mind, the central question that any historical effort is trying to answer is not who's a good person, who's a bad person, but how did we get here? Like, what, what preceded, I mean, it sounds almost pathetically simple but it's like how did we get from there to here and that effort to kind of understand the the road that we're on I think to really do it justice you kind of can't go in looking for necessarily heroes or villains I mean in my book there are people who I certainly feel like have a lot of integrity um you know, believe deeply in equality in, in values that I think are pretty normative and we can we can try to agree on here. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, if you if you try to see people in the past that way and then sort of see people in the present, it kind of doesn't give you enough humility in my mind about your own place in this universe that is actually morally quite complex. I mean, if you look at this kind of history, you see people, Seeing themselves as very moral actors. I mean, so Pat McCarran, for instance, who I guess the airport in Las Vegas is now can be renamed or something, but he, he, until recently, I think was like the, the name of the Vegas airport was named after him. He's a, he was an like extremely powerful senator from Nevada. He was also very, very anti immigrant, even though he was the son of Irish Catholic immigrants himself and who became sort of sheep farmers in rural Nevada. But you know, he's very anti-immigrant, but for him, there's a deep moral cause there. He's very anti-communist. He sort of you know, becomes a sympathizer of Franco in Spain because he thinks the fascists there are actually the best antidote to communism. You know, he, he thinks that he's protecting American values. This is really kind of peak McCarthyist Red Scare times. So I think people in the moment find ways to describe why they're kind of on the moral right side of things. And they may not see the bigger picture of what's actually going on, but I think each of us is sort of fallible in that way, right? We sort of see a piece of how we see the world, but if you sort of insist on looking at history through that lens too of people, of, of moral questions being obvious, um, I don't know. I, I think the people in the moment are trying to figure it out, but they don't always have the right answers and they don't know what's gonna happen. So even if you look at my book, if you, if you insist that there are sort of heroes, um, those people don't intend to, Kind of end a white majority America. So you can't even really, if, if that's sort of your side of it, if you love that, if you love how multiracial the country has been, you think this is a total good, it's exciting, it's thrilling, you want to give credit to these people. Well, they didn't even necessarily set out to do that. So they're not even cleanly heroes um, in that sense. So I just, I get why people want that out of history. Um, it makes it feel I guess, you know, like a cleaner narrative, but I think we, we miss important lessons. And I think we also sort of let ourselves off the hook. If we begin to think that these things are so, so straightforward.
4: Yeah. Just on that point about uh, the, the framers of the 65 act never intending to, to, you know, create a law that essentially allowed for the tremendous diversity that we have immigration driven diversity we have in the United States. In fact, they, they tried to make the case that it was going to do the exact opposite. Right. They, they, um, you know, you have Teddy Kennedy going on the on the Senate floor saying it won't um, substantively change the ethnic makeup of our of our cities. Um, and so uh, but Teddy Kennedy, speaking of, of a character who is kind of uh, runs throughout not just your book, but uh, but also the, the period after um, is, is somebody who you could obviously write a fascinating history about his own uh, his own legacy and immigration. Um, you know, the epilogue, um, which um, I, I have to tell you, quite literally brought me to tears. It's so beautifully written. And and I think you you end by putting out a challenge in some ways to the, the post-65 immigrants. And you put out this challenge in your remarks just a few moments ago. But the post-65 immigrants, their children and their grandchildren, which is to, to kind of... Um, claim the history of the United States as their own and to invest something of themselves so that they become a part of that history and in a way that future generations um, benefit from, from the history that they write. And so I want to ask you what you see as possibilities for today's immigrants, their children and their grandchildren, for writing their own chapter in American history and and the ability to, to change the United States in ways that makes it possible for families like yours and families like mine to come here.
3: I think it's such a weird moment um, for that generation of people, of which I, I obviously count myself. I mean, I think it's in a way the, the the romanticism of a nation of immigrants is so powerful that I think it's allowed people to feel like um, their presence here is not entirely political because of course this is what we do, so there's nothing. You're sort of an apolitical actor, your family arrives, you're here, you live your life, you try to succeed and like you just live this kind of relatively apolitical life. But I think in this moment, you know, post-Trump with with the hate crimes I was just talking about, it's not really an option anymore. I don't think for people to just sort of stay in their lane, hunker down, say politics is not for me, you know, even though their families are here because of politics, there isn't really a way to opt out. So then the much harder question is so if you can't opt out, what are you opting into? Who who are you? Who are we? And I think that's where you kind of have to look beyond the category that you're in, right? So I think what's what's interesting to me about the history in my book is that, you know, Asian American history, which is usually taught as being about, you know, Asian immigrants, people who are part of this long line, you know going back to the 19th century and the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act and then Japanese internment camps, that history to me doesn't necessarily connect Asian immigrants to other parts of the country or other other communities necessarily. I mean, there, there are moments that do, but it's pretty narrowly focused on, you know, that that's what Asian American history is. And I wanna kind of propose that the history of Asian Americans is actually Jewish American history. It's Italian American history, it's Black American history, all of these different groups are kind of fighting a very similar battle, even though their families are from very different parts of the world. So I think that any kind of political conception for these newer Americans, for their children, for their descendants, needs to account for kind of a broader view of what the fight is, right? So we were just talking about how the law is passed, but no one really intends it to do sort of what, it, what it's done. At the same time, I mean, the law is like a really, alongside the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, it's a pretty full throated um, statement that the country is not going to have, you know, laws based on, you know, actual white supremacy, right? That, that phrase is tossed around a lot, but this law is, is from the eugenics movement it's from people who believe that whites and Protestants are superior, literally. So the law is part of something much bigger. It's part of the civil rights movement. It's part of Brown v. Board of Education. It's part of all the Jews and the Catholics who face discrimination themselves, um, face political violence, or you know, the, their, their effort to belong as well. So, I mean, that, that story is an ugly one. These groups often fight against each other and are pitted against each other. But ultimately the thing that they want, the thing that these groups that are, you know, at times considered minority groups want is a full sense of belonging. And so I think for, you know, Asian Americans and others who are trying to figure out, so what is, you know, it's easy to think that there's no, if you come from a family of immigrants, you sometimes feel like you're starting from zero. There's no political history. There's no legacy because you're the first to be here. I think my book is, my what I want my book to be is a way of saying, no, there is a political legacy. There's a political heritage. You don't have to start from scratch. You can see your connections to all these other Americans who came before you, what they fought for, what they literally won that allowed for your family to be here. You are actually, you and we are part of something much bigger. So when you sort of stare down the task of, oh my goodness, we just arrived, who are we politically, What do we believe there's actually there's a lot to work with um and i think that's why learning american history can be such an empowering thing for newer americans and newer american families this is what this is what you've joined um and it's exciting to try to knit together how your family from a totally different part of the world might be connected to people who you know were alive over a century ago who were dealing with very very similar concerns and issues
4: that's so beautifully put i i really appreciate that that vision um, and, I, and I think it's right on. Um, and I, I, you also talk in the end of the book about uh, uh, the notion of the nation of immigrants being a little bit self-serving, right? That, that um, you know, we get to hold ourselves up as the place where everyone wants to come to, right? Um, and the, the national narrative uh, that is the, the nation of immigrants also has the potential to leave some people out, right? Um, my own research, I, I've, um, in my last book, I, I interviewed for a third of my book uh, African-Americans and how they were adjusting in a neighborhood that, that has been defined by massive demographic change where it's, it was majority Black and is now majority Latino. And I remember interviewing one woman who said that they know where they come from. Uh, They 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 send money back to their homes. They go visit their family goes back and forth. They have a sense of their rootedness outside the United States. And what she was telling me was not just that that they have that, but that they can kind of weave their own family's thread into the national fabric. And that she said, we don't know where we come from. We we have to it's from Africa, but Africa is a big continent, and it was so long ago, and it was forced. And, so, and and this is not to mention of course Native Americans who who um, who are not immigrants at all uh, either by force or, or by choice and so you know as we think about the idea of the nation of, of immigrants is it a, is it a capacious uh, uh, notion of American identity or is it a narrow one or or something else? Just a, just a small question that
3: is such a great I, I... <laughs> I've so many questions in my book. I've not heard that one, but it's, I, I, you know, I've thought about that too, since my book came out, it was a thing that I felt like I was kind of edging toward at the end, but I never quite found an answer. I mean, I think that's right, that like this vision, I mean, the vision has like all kinds of other kind of issues. I mean, not to avert your question entirely, but just to take us on a slight detour, even like the melting pot idea. I think they're just analogies we're using that have all these kind of built-in assumptions that are a little bit funny, like the melting pot is literally about sort of collapsing everyone into kind of one type of person um, and you lose any other, there's no hyphenation um, or no hyphen, whatever you prefer. Like there's no kind of a dual cultural identity of any kind. I mean, and I think the nation immigrants too, like the people who wanted it also, what was unspoken is they wanted to be considered white Americans. I mean, I think that's part of what that was about. It was saying, well, we, we fit in. We're in the mainstream. We deserve the same jobs, the same opportunities. We've arrived. But what does arriving in America mean? And I think that's, again, one of the challenges now is that if you are from outside Europe, you're not going to become, I mean, I would argue white the way that some, you know, that, that Jews and Italian Americans became more white over time. That path is not available, I would I would think, if you're Asian, African, from the Middle East. And so what is this kind of new version of acculturation, whatever you want to call it, of becoming American even look like. And I think that's where probably this old version of a nation of immigrants, you know, what I was trying to say earlier, it has to be kind of the same, but it also has to be different because it's such a different group of people. And these people in a way have much more common cause in some respects with Black Americans, with American Indians, when we think about sort of political status um, and and belong in the struggle to belong, than they do with the kind of white ethnic immigrants and their descendants who were you know who became became white over time. So I don't know. I I love that though that somebody said that to you because I I I think that's right that that um, especially now with so many immigrants, people do have kind of like a bi cultural life in a lot of ways, right? People go back and forth. They have family who are in this other country. It's easier to, it's, I mean, it's easier to travel. That changed immigration forever, of course, right? So that idea of someone fully being in this country versus another one, I think that is also changing and is yet another challenge to this question of how do these new immigrants really become part of this country?
4: So um, I, I want to give our audience out there an opportunity to ask you some questions and, and I'm going to read um, some to you and, and ask you to answer them. And, and before I do that, I just want to remind our audience that they can submit questions um, and, and I will do my best to get through as, as many as we can in the remaining time we have. Um, so I'm going I'm to go right from the top here. Um, I think this is a this is, uh, a question that is a little bit more on a lighter note than, than some of the heavier topics we've been engaging in, um, but still a serious question. Um, so the question is, if you had been a journalist covering the, covering the journey of the 1965 immigration law at the time, who would you most want to interview?
3: Um probably Manny Seller because he'd been there from the beginning. And I don't think there's enough of a record of his life, honestly. Um, You know, he writes a memoir and it's kind of, it's a funny memoir. It's a little bit, it's it's not so carefully considered. He's basically almost pulling like congressional record transcripts of his speeches from the floor of the house for his memoir. So it's not, I don't know how much time he spent on it. Um, And there's just not that much on him, you know, I I actually interviewed his granddaughters to try to understand him better. I, um, you know, went through the archives of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle for any mention of his family. But I think for someone who had such an incredible influence on America through all of the civil rights legislation that he shepherded and um, has his name on, there's just relatively little known about him. So yeah, I think if I could go back in time, I'd wanna actually spend a lot of time with him um, and to understand because I think he of all the people who were involved um, was sort of the least opportunistic about it. I think the Kennedys were kind of like, I don't think they were people who loved being identified as Irish American. That was in fact, I think the image they were running away from in some ways um, with their father, Joe Kennedy Sr. So for them, it was I I think it was a, a lot of political opportunity to attract a kind of voter. But Manny Seller is someone who I believe you know, again, this is sort of dangerous with history to speculate um, what someone who's who's not with us would, would think of something modern, but just to go there. Um, I think of the people involved, he's the one who would be most comfortable with what ended up happening. That ultimately he really was someone who believed in immigrants from everywhere. He didn't have a problem with non-European immigrants in the time. And he I think he would have been potentially sort of delighted by what had happened, surprised, but also you know, kind of thrilled that his hometown of Brooklyn became what it is today. Uh,
4: I, just having read your book, I, I agree. I found him to be the most fascinating character because I only knew his name from the 65 law, but knew very little about him. So I appreciate the the dive, deep dive you did into his life. And it sounds like um, there might be another book out there for you or for, you know, uh, or for a historian Who's, uh, who's looking for a good dissertation to write potentially. Um, so let's see, I'm, I'm looking at our, um, at our other questions. So just forgive me if I'm pausing for a second to make sure I'm reading them carefully. Um, okay, so um, someone has noted that the term immigrant is divisive and wanted to know if you could um, comment on the different terminology that we use. And maybe this is asking you to put on your hat as a journalist as well as a historian. Um, uh, But the terms like refugee, migrant, uh, and I'm going to embellish a little bit and add to the question things like undocumented, illegal, unauthorized. There's lots of terminology out there. Uh, Could you comment on it and, and does it matter and why?
3: I don't think there are easy answers in the journalism that we do either for this. You know, um, I'll add more, right? Like alien is a very common one. Um, I was surprised to learn in my book, and I, know, I don't know if I actually fully resolved this in the writing, but displaced persons was the terminology after World War II for refugees. Um, I think the issue with some of these words is that there's so, um, so much from our legal code that they make it very easy to kind of divide people up based on their legal status, which is which is a part of the story, right? When you're writing about immigration, you do have to deal with whether the person has, you know, the right papers for, and what what their legal status is. But I think like a word like migrant too, it kind of just immediately, you just sort of get a picture in your mind immediately of who that person is. And it's hard to relate to them, I think, for a lot of people. It's like, it's it's that person who's, you know, trying to get here, and they're over there, and they have nothing to do with me. And part of what my book, I think, was trying to do was to try to kind of strip that away, to say that we've built up a lot of these legal categories um, and specific names for people. And, you know, I mean, oh my god, the world of visas, right? Like, H-1B. Like, I mean, it's just, it's 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 the worst of, of like, official Washingtonese. Um, and all of it just kind of makes it hard to see the people involved and to also feel like you might be one of them, right? Like, you know, that that because you have these papers versus these other papers, I mean, I don't even mean this in like a political statement, like we, um, you know, that we should take in all these people because we're all people, but I just mean like it becomes hard to see the situation clearly, I guess. Like you you kind of end up with a foggy, foggy view because you just sort of filter everybody through this paperwork. Especially when over hundred years ago, we again, as I said, we didn't have the paperwork. So there weren't, you didn't have H-1B. I mean, no one would have known what you were talking about. I mean, people still don't, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I just think there's something about all these words. Um, you know, I know I'm not a believer that if you change the words, you're gonna change policy or you're gonna change how people see things. But it does strike me that we could stand to have a conversation about this and I think when you know the history, it forces you to see that you are also someone who has papers or doesn't have papers. And I would add, to me, the lesson of you know, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust is that your papers can change in their significance and in their meaning. You can have the right papers today and it's a political act that you have them, but it's also a political act to take the power of those papers away. So that's why when people sort of lose citizenship and become stateless, I mean, I don't mean to be paranoid, but like any, anyone can have the meaning, the political meaning and significance of their papers changed at any moment. It's, it's all a collective political act. It's our legal system that we put together. So in a way like these, these words, when we talk about it, I think if we're gonna really understand the issue, you kind of really have to explode that wall a little bit and begin to see not just as an act of sort of human empathy, but as a way of seeing it clearly that you too have papers Um, that have a history um, and a certain significance, but somebody else, you know, just as easily could have had those papers or not. Um, And that you're part of the system. It's not that there's a system for those people, but that you're part of it too, if that makes any sense.
4: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And, you know, as a sociologist, the thing that fascinates me is the way in which the papers you have uh, and um, become a kind of social lens so you know the the big categories I think among people who were born outside of the United States are whether you are documented or not, and and the notion of being undocumented is I think as you rightly point out a kind, it is obviously a legal status but um, it is also a social status it's a it's a social condition and it and it is in in some ways a social condition. Uh, for everyone who is in the United States in that if you if you have the papers you're talking about, uh, that that the notion of being undocumented becomes a social category that you use to uh, to interpret who's in and who's out, not just legally, but socially. Um, We have like five minutes left Um, and uh and so there and we have a lot of questions, so I will stop editorializing and be the person who actually asked the question. Um and I'll ask you this one. Um, is there another country that's getting immigration right? In quotes.
3: I don't really have an answer to that. Um, you know, I think Canada is kind of an interesting model because sometimes it's I've seen it held up as the country that gets it right. You know, like it's really welcomed immigrants. There's, But, you know, I think that their model is really as far as I know, and and you very well may know more than I do, is I can't say that I've done a lot of sort of comparative research across modern immigration systems, but their model in my mind leans very hard into the specialized skill priority, right? Like if you have, if you're a special person with special skills, we want you, which I think kind of invites this sort of the the desirable good immigrant versus bad immigrant kind of paradigm that people talk about, right? That like the immigrants we want are the ones who can um, who can do the jobs that we need, right? So that's sort of, ha- that's the lens through which you decide who you want. And, you know, I I try to shy away from kind of what is the good system or the bad system, not, I mean, not just as to, wait, I don't, I'm not trying to just dodge the question. I think it's actually, not a question for me to answer myself. I think it's a thing that we have to kind of collectively decide what we value. So if you look at Canada, right? Like that system prioritizes people with advanced degrees of a certain professional class and that's who they're gonna get. So, you know, they're not, as opposed to saying everyone's gonna be a refugee. Right. Like that's and I think there's a moral argument for that. And there's other arguments for other models. So, yeah, I don't know that there's some system out there that I would say individually that's the right one. In fact, I see every one of them. And I think, well, there is a again, if you're not going to take in everybody, you're making these difficult choices. So do you want the person who, if they stayed in their home country, would probably be okay? You know, they're they're a professional class. They're highly educated. They're not being politically persecuted you know, and they come to the, your country and sort of bring these skills, but do you want that person above the person who's a stateless refugee, who's been in a camp, you know, who was maybe born stateless in the camp? Why are you picking the doctor over the refugee? I, I just think you have to kind of ask yourself that. So even Canada, which I think sometimes people, liberals especially, say, like, that's, that's the model. Um, I think they're making hard choices too, and they're not, they're not obvious to me.
4: Yeah, I mean, Canada has a, has a point system which, you know, I, I there are a lot of people who have a very allergic reaction to suggestions that the United States should have a point system, even though it's something they have in Canada and Australia. Um, so we are about at time. Um, I want to thank you for writing this book. Uh, I learned, as I mentioned at the outset, I learned a ton from reading this book, and it will forever change the way that I think about our country's history, about immigration history, and, and, and the way that I think about the contemporary period. So I want to personally thank you, and I want to thank you on behalf of all of the people who get to read your book, and everyone should go out and buy the book and read it, listen to it on Audible. Uh, it, really, it really is fabulous. It, it is uh, beautifully written um, and full of rich detail that add up to, um, to, that add up to a, a very cohesive story about an important period. In American history that before I read your book didn't think was as important as it, as, as it turned out to be. Um, and I want to congratulate you on winning this award. It, it is so well deserved. And um, thank you for, for spending this time with us and sharing a little bit about the backstory and, and your thoughts about the book and, and uh, lots of other themes related to it.
3: Thank you so much. This is just such an honor um, to receive the prize, to get your thoughtful questions and just to be here with all of you this evening. So thank you.
4: Thank you very much. Have a good evening, everyone.